Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 29th, uh, 2022, and the world has another refugee crisis on its hands. The headlines today are all about the refugees from the Ukraine. Uh, AP asks or re reminds us that Ukrainian refugees have neared 4 million. Will the exodus slow down? Uh, last, apparently, it depends, I guess, on the war and whether the war slows down. Um, the EU has agreed to a plan to aid refugee resettlement for the moment. Uh, companies are even making a big push, according to CNN, to help refu uh, Ukrainian refugees get jobs. Very different kind of refugee crisis from the previous one or the one currently going on from uh, Africa and the Middle East in Europe. Uh, but even uh, the support for Ukrainian refugees, whilst high in Europe, might not last. Uh, surprise, surprise. Uh, and CNN, uh, in terms of uh, the U.S. welcoming map for Ukrainian refugees, 100,000, according to Joe Biden, some see that as um, a double standard. Uh, I'm curious, my guest today has a book out, not about Ukrainian refugees, but the broader crisis of refugees in Europe from uh, Africa and the Middle East. Sally Hayden. Uh, her book is entitled um, My Fourth Time We Drown, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. Very different crisis from the one in Ukraine. Sally is joining us from, of all places, Carnaby Street in London. Welcome, Sally. Um, is, uh, is there a deep hypocrisy now in terms of Europe's supposed welcome to refugees from Ukraine, particularly in countries like Poland, uh, who, who had historically been uh, overtly hostile to uh, refugees from North Africa, Middle East and Africa. What's your sense of the current mood on the Ukrainian refugee crisis? And given your new book, what should we beware of? Um, hi, yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I guess the first thing to say in terms of what's happening with Ukraine is that obviously, like, it's devastating, you know, and, um, you know, it's great that the EU is welcoming people. But for people like me who have been reporting on the EU's treatment of other refugees, it's also been quite shocking because on Europe's other borders, every effort is being made to make sure that people don't get to reach safety and that they don't get to flee from, you know, what they're running from. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you said in your intro, we don't know what this lasts. Of course, it, it would be great if it does last, but that's not guaranteed that this welcome will continue. But at least those people have managed to actually make it onto the territory of Europe. I don't want Ukraine to distract from your story, Sally. It's a really remarkable book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, also a remarkable uh, title. I think it's going to be uh, one of the major books of the year in terms of tr tragic, troubling, 
uh, emotional non uh, uh, nonfiction and narrative. Uh, the book has a remarkable story of yourself. You're the heart of this book. How did you get into covering refugees? You begin with a SIM card, of all things, in London. How did you dedicate so much of your life to covering this tragic refugee crisis? Yeah, I mean, um, like I say in the book, basically, I got just a very unexpected message one day back in August 2018. Um, it said, Hi, Sister Sally, we need your help. We are under bad condition in Libya prison. If you have time, I will tell you all the story. And so uh, I kind of looked at this. I didn't really understand why was someone messaging me if they were in a Libyan prison? You know, how did they get my name? How did... Um, how did it occur to them? Like, how did they have internet even? How did they have a phone? But I said, you know, tell me more about it. Like, I, I can't help, but you can tell me more about it. So what transpired was that it was a group of 500 men, women and children who had been locked in this um, detention center, what they called a prison. It was a migrant detention center. And pretty much all of them had tried to cross the Mediterranean Sea to reach safety in Europe. And they were intercepted by the, the Libyan Coast Guard, who are supported by the European Union. So the Libyan Coast Guard since 2017 have intercepted around 90,000 men, women and children. And they get forced back to detention centers um, and just locked up indefinitely. There's no legal, you know, there's no charge. There's no legal recourse to get out. And um, they... The ones who contacted me, a war had just broken out around them and they said that they desperately needed help, that the guards who had been uh, overseeing them had run away and that they um, had no food and no water and they just needed help. So from there, I obviously did everything I could to verify this. I then started reporting on it and it ended up that my contacts, my number got passed around many other detention centers. So it wasn't just an isolated incident. There were actually many of these centers. Um, and yeah, that's basically has kind of changed the last four years of my life. This is what I've is what I've been reporting on. And this is where the book came from, uh, just exposing what is happening and exposing the implications of this European policy that is, um, you know, supporting these interceptions. So yes generously given me a number of very troubling photos uh, which she's taken some of hers uh, for people not watching the, the photos are as traumatic as you could imagine many of us have seen similar kinds of photos how did it change your life Sally um, you said in 2018 what were you a, a freelance journalist uh, you were living in London yeah I was freelance and I mean I should say I had been reporting on general migration issues since 2015. Um, when I had a staff job, it was the so-called migrant crisis, the European migrant crisis. And I reported on it a bit as part of that. And I met like quite a lot of refugees through that work. And so um, as a result of that, I had ended up also reporting in countries like Syria and then in Sudan. And in Sudan, I, I did this investigation. Um, I went out to report actually on EU funding and the implications it was having there. And EU Sudan is beside Libya. So like a lot of refugees, they'll travel through Sudan to get to Libya to try and reach Europe. So when I was in Sudan, 
Um, I was interviewing people, interviewing refugees. I taught about EU funding, but actually what they wanted to talk about was the UN Refugee Agency. They were saying that, you know, the so-called legal evacuation, like the legal route to safety, um, that the people who were overseeing it were demanding bribes of tens of thousands of dollars in some cases to be to consider them for legal resettlement. And so they were saying that they didn't have the opportunity to do this. Um, and that was one of the reasons why they had to take illegal routes like the one through Libya. And so I had done this investigation and that had been published in May 2018. And two days after I did the after we published it, uh, the UN Refugee Agency suspended the resettlement program from Sudan and that they, they eventually did find one person guilty um, of of abusing power and soliciting bribes. So my name became known in Sudan uh, for this work that I had been doing. And that was actually, but I didn't know at the time, that was how the refugees in Libya then got my name because of this other reporting. So I didn't come across this, like, you know, I, I did have knowledge, but I actually hadn't been paying attention so much to Libya itself. And so that was still, you know, the implications of this European policy because, um, you know, up until that point, there are arguments that Europe wasn't necessarily responsible for what was happening. But at the point that people are intercepted at sea and then forced back to detention, it seemed to me that that was it was clear then that Europe, Europe was responsible. Um, and so I wanted to document the consequences of what happened after that point. Um, uh, Sally. There's a great moral outrage at the heart of your book, standing back. Do you think that there is an element of criminality about the European response to the, this ongoing refugee crisis? How would you frame it in broad historical terms? Um, I guess it depends what you see as criminal. I mean, obviously. Well, you're the expert, so I'm, that, that's my question for you. Yeah, like it, it's powerful people that make the rules, right? And a lot of this European policy is actually about circumnavigating international law. So what is illegal under international law is returning someone to a country where their life is in danger. Um, so what Europe is doing is supporting the Libyan Coast Guard. So the Libyan Coast Guard are the ones who are doing the interceptions because a Libyan boat can return someone to Libya, but a European boat can't. But the EU is doing the surveillance um, and they're, you know, flying helicopters, planes, drones to spot the refugee boats to then. Uh, uh, Sally, I apologize for jumping in here. Sometimes I get into trouble for interrupting. But can we name some names here of, 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 of European policymakers who were responsible here? Who are making these decisions? Who is accountable for this in incredibly heartless, at best and at worst, criminal behavior of the Europeans? Um, I mean, that's one of the things that I looked at. So a chapter of the book looks at the allegations that what the EU is doing is, you know, criminal, is crimes against humanity. And there are two lawyers called uh, Omar Schatz and Juan, uh, Juan Branco. And they've exactly been trying to make this list. But the issue is that um, the systems are very opaque, so it's not generally clear who actually is doing that decision making. And one of the 
issues is that there's what's called the EU Trust Fund for Africa that was brought in in 2015. That's a multi-billion uh, euro pot of money that's being spent across 26 African countries essentially to stop migration. And that's been designated as crisis spending. So there isn't the same type of accountability on that spending that there normally would be um, with European spending. So it's it doesn't have the same oversight. Like it's kind of been designed so that there isn't that oversight. And so it is difficult to say exactly who is culpable. And I know that they are doing a big investigation. They said they're going to name uh, names and they were saying it's probably going to be people you've never heard of, you know, the civil servants who are in the room at the right, time. But you've, you've written a book, you've dedicated four or five lies, four or five years of your life in a very brave way. You've, you're now one of the major voices on this. What's your sense of what's gone wrong? Is it because the EU is essentially a bureaucracy? Is it because the European project is by definition racist and hostile to people from other continents? Or is there something else going on here? Is it just because this is an inconvenient truth that Europeans simply don't want to deal with? I mean, I think that it happened over a long period of time. One of the people that I interviewed was called uh, Enrico Letta. He's the former prime minister of Italy. And one thing that he said that was done at an early stage um, wrongly was that search and rescue. So like saving lives should never have come under the term migration management, that saving life is a, lives is an imperative, but instead it's being dealt with as kind of migration management like as a policy um and he said if someone is in need you you should save that life you know that shouldn't be something that's been that goes without saying doesn't it sally i mean looking at these photos for people again if you're just listening to this you don't you're not seeing sally's photos which are deeply traumatic many of them very moving i mean this is a this is an essential human rights issue which you're suggesting now and in your book um, is not, it, 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 it's, it's scandalous. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think it's scandalous, definitely. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think to, to sorry to, sorry to be long-winded, to refer to what you were talking about before, like we had the so-called European migration crisis in 2015, and a lot of um, kind of more conservative or even far-right groups latched onto that as a way of, uh, you know, like campaigning basically or like achieving more political power. And from European d diplomats and politicians that I spoke to, you know, of, uh, or, you know, privately, they wouldn't be named saying this, but like they say that there was this reaction to try and stop the far right from getting into power, basically. And that particularly came out the last European elections when the EU literally came out two, two months before and said, the migrant crisis is over um, and what they've actually done is pushed it kind of further away from Europe's borders so that the people aren't reaching into Europe but I mean that's what everyone I speak to basically says that this policy kind of developed because of a desperation by the people who would be more center centrist I guess um, to keep out the far right, to stop people from using this to, to gain power. And it's ironic that in Eastern Europe, some members of the far right at least seem to be embracing Ukrainian refugees, perhaps because they're Catholic or because they're white. We are talking with Sally, very brave young journalist, very articulate, important young journalist, Sally Hayden, 
the author of a new book, My Fourth Time We Drown, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. Uh, Sally's done some remarkable uh, journalism in, in terms of covering the injustice and the terrible suffering of, of this refugee problem. Uh, Sally, I'm going to take a short break now, and then afterwards I want to come back and I want to talk specifically about Libya and Africa. Let's, we've, we've talked enough about um, European moral guilt in this. Let's talk about uh, what's actually happening in Libya and your travels in Africa and how we're going to actually fix this crisis. So we'll be back in 60 seconds with Sally Hayden, the author of My Fourth Time We Drowned. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Sally Hayden, the author of an incredibly important new book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, an account of the refugee crisis, the North African-African refugee crisis in the Mediterranean. Um, Sally, we, we talked about European uh, moral complicity before the break. I want to talk more specifically. You, you, you touched on Libya, and, and, and Libya is central in your narrative. We did a show last month with a geopolitical writer Jason Pack on what he, uh, he he writes on Libya. He's done a lot of work on Libya, using Libya as an example of geopolitical failure, essentially the destruction of the state. He has a new book out, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. Um, how central is Libya, in your sense, in the crisis? Has Libya become the lawless gateway, in a sense, to Europe? Yeah, I mean, yeah, basically, like Libya, for people that don't know, it's um, Gaddafi was obviously in power until 2011. But since then, it's kind of failed to have 
uh, functional governance in the sense that there have been multiple governments um, like at the same time. And the country is also basically being run by militias. I mean, it's split between militias. Militias are controlling pretty much everything. It's militia rule. Um, so even if you have a government that you think you're dealing with, they won't necessarily actually have control over a particular territory and they're negotiating with militias as well um, all the time. And yeah, in that in that environment, first of all, smuggling tri thrived. So it was essentially people smuggling um, that was happening and that people were making huge amounts of money off. And then uh, with this kind of EU deal, it's become a lot harder to cross the sea and what um, experts kind of say about this is that it's gone from monetization of, of travel to monetization of captivity. So now there's still a lot of money that's being spent related to migrants and refugees, but it's being spent essentially to, you know, keep them locked up in various different ways. Yeah, you have some images, some really actually very troubling images of, of, of Libya. Were these photos taken by yourself or by somebody else? No, so these photos you can see at the bottom, it's actually crowdfunding. Um, what's happening in these photos is that people who have gone to Libya under, you know, with smugglers, they then get held for ransom. The amount that they thought that they were going to pay gets multiplied, like sometimes many times. And, uh, you know, the role of social media, and this is very interesting because it's essentially raised the cost, but it's also a way that the family members of the people who are being held for ransom can raise money. So actually those photos that you're seeing were all publicly available on Facebook. They were posted by um, people's families who wanted to raise enough money and crowdfund the money basically to get them released. And, you know, normally sometimes being released means that you get sent to sea. So I think people don't realize that, like actually going to sea is the end already of a long journey. Like it, it can be one year, two years, three years that you're spending with smugglers trying to raise this ransom. And because it became so much harder to cross the sea, um, the smugglers started doing this thing where they sell people between them so that they can profit again and again. So it's essentially, uh, it, it's it's the new slavery, essentially, is it? Yeah, that's what I call the chapter in the book, the 21st century slave trade. And how does it compare? I mean, in some ways, it's even more brutal than the original slave trade, isn't it? Um, I mean, I don't know that I'd say that, but I think that... Uh, like, this is horrific. Well, equally, I, you know, again, I don't want to make any moral... I, I'm not trying to excuse the original, obviously, uh, slave trade, but I'm suggesting that it's it's not profoundly different from the kind of slave trade which we, in the West, in the West assumed... Yeah, I mean, it's the buying and selling of humans, isn't it? And there is also forced labor involved, like, um, both in the detention centers and sometimes in the smugglers' warehouses. People get sent out to work on farms or... I work as domestic, do domestic work, or also work with militias, even like loading weapons and things like that. Um, and yeah, like that's forced labor. So there well, is a well, element. You, you, your, your new book, um, Sally, is, as I said, a really important book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, which is an attempt to, to tell the world about this. But why is this not well known? Is it simply because we don't want to hear about it? I mean, these... These images that you're showing, I have to admit, I, I, I didn't know about this. I mean, they're so troubling. Uh, 
you know, we're, we're shocked with Putin. And again, I'm not trying to excuse Putin, but these are another level in terms of the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine or anything else going on in the world today. Yeah, I mean, that was what was shocking for me in terms of them being shared on Facebook. It's not just that the images exist, it's that they were freely available. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that a loss has been built up in terms of making sure that Europeans, for example, aren't hearing these stories. I mean, it's obviously hard to get information. It's hard to travel to Libya to get a visa. Um, there was a journalist. You, you didn't go to you didn't go to Libya for this book, did you? No, and I tried to get a visa for about a year, um, and I wasn't able to get a visa. But yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I in in your understanding, is there a close connection between the refugee traders, the, what you call the new slave trade, and the militias running the country or competing yeah. on running the country? Yeah, I mean, completely like there, it's not so, and also the Libyan Coast Guard, I mean, some of the Libyan Coast Guard have been involved in smuggling, uh, they're known to sell people straight back to smugglers sometimes, the smugglers also work with the guards of the detention centers, sometimes people are taken by smugglers forcibly from detention, sometimes they're allowed to leave if they pay to go back to smugglers, so the whole thing is interlinked, it's basically like a big cycle that you can um, get trapped in and yeah, all of it is is kind of, I guess, criminality. Well, to put it mildly, um, if this, of course, was going on in Europe, there would be complete moral uproar. There'd be a UN army, a NATO army, some sort of not army uh, invading. At what point does the world need to wake up to what's happening in, in Libya and perhaps establish some sort of more coherent international cooperation to confront this? I mean, I think it's a good question. Like, I think that actually, if you interview EU politicians, for example, they'll say that they're trying to do that. They kind of say, oh, but when there are elections, Libya will be more stable. Like one big question that I have and that a lot of Libyans that I interviewed also say is like this money aimed at stopping migration isn't it actually empowering militias, which is making Libya less secure, even for Libyans, you know? And so um, if you if you interview EU politicians, like they will say they're hoping for elections, they're hoping that stability returns, um, all of this, and maybe things will be better then. But at the same stage, you know, I think there are serious questions, of course, to be asked about the role that this money is playing too, and and potentially. What about the- now? You're talking to me from Carnaby Street in London. Um, of course, uh, Great Britain chose to leave the European Union for better or worse. What about non-EU countries, the United Kingdom or the United States, um, or other African or Middle Eastern countries? Why are they not involved in this? I mean, the UK uh, forces have actually been involved in training the Libyan Coast Guard in the past. And I think that Brexit was one reason why there was such an effort to have these anti-migration measures, because Brexit, the people who campaigned for it very much used immigration as a argument for why people should leave the EU. Um, so I think all these, like they are interconnected. Another big problem is that generally western countries don't offer enough legal resettlement spaces they make getting visas very 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 difficult for people who are in need of them and so um for example the un 
resettles a certain number of refugees every year, but that number is very, very below adequate. Um, and so, yeah, other, other countries are also culpable, really, because, you know, this is this is bigger than just the EU, but the EU, I guess, is what I was looking at um, and the specific people involved in this policy. Of course, it's this crisis is bigger than just Libya. I mean, Libyans or apologists for the Libyan regime would argue, I guess, that, well, it's not their problem. It's an African problem in terms of people coming through Libya, trying to get to Europe. We did a show last year with Ty McCormack, and I know you're familiar with his work um, on the refugee crisis in Africa beyond the sea, sorry, beyond the sand and sea, one family's quest for a country to call home. It's a dark book, but not quite as dark as yours, um, uh, Sally, uh, your book, My Fourth Time We Drowned. You spent some time in Africa researching this book. What did, and again, I know this is a, a rather general question, but what did you find in terms of the causes of this refugee crisis, of these people's going through Libya trying to get to Europe? Yeah, I mean, I've actually lived in Africa the last three years, um, so I'm I'm based there generally um, in various different countries. But the people that are that are going to Libya generally, they're either coming from East African countries, um, Somalia, Eritrea, very often uh, Darfur and Sudan as well, North Africa, South Sudan. So they're fleeing war or dictatorships. In Eritrea, they have like a you know very terrible dictatorship. Um, where people are forced into mandatory military service indefinitely, essentially, and so it's been declared, it's been compared to slavery again. So yeah, people, you have some pictures here from Sierra Leone too, very troubling photos. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, they're they're fleeing. They'd be considered refugees, basically, like wars, dictatorships. But then you have West Africans who are more generally what we would call or deem uh, economic migrants. And that actually was kind of revelatory for me when I went to Sierra Leone, because one chapter of the book is reported right. there. You also go but, to Addis Ababa in East Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the book, I went to Sudan, Rwanda, um, Ethiopia, and Sierra Leone. It's a remarkable book. I mean, I'm not just saying it, Sally. Uh, I, I deal with all these books all the time. I mean, what you've done is is, a, is astonishing. What, you know, you've talked about two kinds of refugees from Africa, the economic migrants and the people fleeing political conflict. What generalizations can you make, both in terms of why people are doing it? Aren't they learning about the, the these slave-like conditions in Libya? Wouldn't that Certainly, it would persuade economic migrants not to, to do it, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's what I was saying. So this idea of economic migrants, they're taking a very big risk because it's not, they're not fleeing from, you know, they wouldn't even be given asylum necessarily in um, Europe. But when I went to Sierra Leone, I learned, you know, a lot more than I had understood before about what we call an economic migrant. For example, in Sierra Leone, the life expectancy is about 25 years below what it would be in Europe. Um, I think it's something like 10% of children under five die. It's one of the worst places to give birth. You're highly likely to die if you give birth there. So there are these kind of risks to life that are actually poverty related that wouldn't qualify you to be a refugee, you know, but 
I still don't think that you can say that there's no risk to life by living in Sierra Leone. Um, for example, I was there during the, you know, when they had a big coronavirus outbreak and people, there wasn't, there weren't ventilators, you know, so you just, if you needed a ventilator, you just died. Um, so that kind of shows you, you know, we, we speak, we call that poverty, but like that is a risk to life. So I think people I spoke to there, they were just looking for opportunity. They see a random corruption, nepotism. How, how well known though is what's happening in, Libya in particular, in a place like Sierra Leone, where there are so many economic migrants? Uh, I think it, I think definitely at this stage it's quite well known because there's a lot of people, once they get stuck in detention, the only way to get out, if you've run out of money, the only way out is to get an EU-funded flight back to Sierra Leone. So there's a lot of returnees at this point, and I met some of them. Um, and even the ones who who were aware, like they had literally lived through this. Some of them told me that they were thinking of going back again because there was nothing for them in Sierra Leone. And there's this idea that I heard a lot um, that people would just tell you outright, they don't mind if they die. They'd rather like risk dying and have the opportunity of, you know, improving their lives or getting somewhere that they had more security um, rather than, you know, living as they were living. And that was very shocking to me. To put it mildly. So, Sally, briefly, I, this is a huge subject, and I know I don't want to just deal in cliches or headlines, but what can be done? I mean, we, we, we can't expect to reinvent the economics of Africa. Certainly in a generation, it's going to take much longer than that. What can be done in the short term to address this profound humanitarian crisis that you write about in this incredibly important new book, My Fourth Time We Drown. What can be done in the next five to 10 years? And indeed in the next six months or year? I mean, for me, to be honest, I kind of, I don't know that it's my role to say exactly what should happen. Like I see my role as- Well, but you've, you've seen this up front. I mean, everyone's watching and listening and are outraged and shocked and sickened that's one thing and your and your book has achieved that but, but but there needs to be some fixes too we need to start thinking concretely and coherently about addressing this crisis yeah and i mean like i said before like there's a lack of legal routes to safety i mean legal routes are always going to make people like the the more the harder the borders get the more dangerous it is for people but people still keep trying you know if you have legal routes and I, I never spoke to pretty much anyone who wouldn't have preferred a legal route um so if the legal routes existed you know even the people in detention some of them have waited years because they're hoping that they'll be resettled through the un rather than they'll have to make a dangerous sea journey or something like that um, so i think of course legal routes to say so a legal route means that europeans would allow people from Africa to settle, whether in Denmark, Sweden, Germany, United Kingdom. Is that what you're saying? Like this already happens. So there are already resettlement programs that take refugees from countries. But um, these, are the, these are the refugees who have essentially won the lottery. Yeah, exactly. And the problem is that there's too few spaces offered, um, which is why you know, there's, there's like a tiny number of spaces offered, essentially. So the chance of you getting that is very low. And then also the corruption in that process increases the more scarce the spaces are. So of course, having more spaces 
Um, and even it, like in that book by Ty McCormack that you referenced, like that um, guy got out because he had a scholarship to go and study. Yeah, I mean, he won the lottery or he won the biggest lottery of them all. So it's a, mm -hmm. an uplifting story in some ways that Ty tells in his book Beyond the Sand and Sea. Yeah, but I mean, more opportunities like that. I know that people, if they have ways, you know, if they can work hard and work towards something and find a way to get somewhere um because because particularly economic migrants they feel that they just don't have opportunities that they can't if they work hard it means nothing you know that's the feeling whereas of course then you have refugee situation where people can't stay where they are and so that's a kind of difference a different question but i think a lot of questions need to be asked about all of this eu spending you know the billions of euro that is being spent how much of that is actually reaching the people who need it and how much of that is going towards making borders more, um, you know, supporting re repressive regimes, supporting militias and also hardening borders in a way that actually put people's lives more in danger, you know, because that's a huge amount of money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listening to you, um, um, listening to you, Sally, uh, makes me, I, I was never a big Brexit fan, but it makes me think that perhaps some of the arguments that the Brexit crowd made about the opaqueness of EU bureaucracy, their lack of a moral accountability, some of this stuff is actually true, although that doesn't necessarily justify Brexit. And it probably would have required the UK to stay in the EU, EU to force these bureaucrats to actually have more moral accountability. Yeah, I mean... I don't, I don't know that I could say that, to be honest. Yeah, well, anyway, uh, congratulations again on the book. Uh, someone has to do it, and you're the brave journalist who has. Sally Hayden, my fourth time we drown, seeking refuge on the world's deadliest migration route. Not a cheerful book, but an incredibly important one. What else should we be reading, Sally, these days? Hopefully something slightly more cheerful than your book. Um, I mean, I haven't been reading that much that is cheerful, to be honest, but I did an event last night with a journalist called Matthew Akins. Maybe you came across his book. It's called The Naked Don't Fear the Water. And so he actually looks at the refugee route into East, um, East Europe. So from Afghanistan. Is that more cheerful or equally dark and depressing? I, I would say slightly more cheerful, potentially, <laughs> though. I'm not sure if it's... Yeah, I'll have to get him, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be in Hungary next week, so uh, I'll see it for myself close up. Uh, Hallie, uh, Sally Hayden, again, congratulations. On behalf Thank of you. the world, this book is incredibly important. My fourth time we drown, seeking refuge on the world's deadliest migration route. It should be a, a moral wake-up call, particularly to Europe, but to the world about what's happening on the in the Mediterranean Sea. You're not the first or the last book to be written, but a, a particularly important one by a brave young journalist. Uh, Sally, finally, uh, and this is perhaps an appropriate question to ask you, given the nature of your book. Who's in charge these days, Sally Hayden? Who's running the world? I'd say rich countries. 